Hey, Forge family. And podcast number 10, the author of the epistle of James. That same James who was the half-brother of Jesus. The James who led the church in Jerusalem. That James took on the problem of arrogant, practical atheism in the assemblies to which he wrote. Jewish merchants, believers in Jesus, mind you, were prospering in the go-go atmosphere of expanding Roman Empire. And they were being sought after because their their business acumen produced profits that accrued, and that resulted in great trickle-down prosperity. James is taking them on, not because of their profits, and not because of their business methods. He's taking them on because of their planning. There has been no thought of God in their mind whatsoever as they planned out their their profits. That secular lifestyle was spreading in James's congregations and he rebukes those who knew better. Then James taught again how to come at life. And he says, you do it this way, quote, if God wills, unquote. The merchants were boasting at their prowess. And James just labels that as evil. And then he turns and teaches everyone, them included, how to, how to make this correction. Okay? Finally, he wrapped up and he said, do what is right every time. Now, that's not precisely what the text said. If you recall, the text said, if, if um, you see what is right to do and you don't do it to that man, it is sin. So I inverted the text and it says, do what is right every time. All right, let's pray. Lord, I admit several occasions when I was drawn towards men who had great toys. <clears throat> and in their circle, their stories of growing wealth, man, they, that was attractive stuff. But you were so faithful to me to help me see their greater needs and to leave that attraction to other men's stuff behind. We, as a family here, are a company of believers, Lord, who want to be quickly responsive to you, quickly directed by you, quickly corrected and and, and shaped and, and placed. We want to follow you alone. Hear our cry, Lord, in Jesus' name. All right, Forge family. Go gather up your James notebooks, your text, pens, coffee cups. Let's begin podcast number 11. And we're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. So let's read it. This is what it says. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have come, have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver has rusted and your rust 
and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has come and reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourself may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count, our, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. All right. We begin podcast number 11. James begins, in, but he, you need to look back in some senses to chapter 4, verse 13, where he uses the same wording, this shot across the bow of, come now, listen up, do I have your full attention? See, he now opens a diatribe in chapter 5, verse 1, which is a harsh argument with illustrations against the wealthy landowners who are not following Christ. <clears throat> These wealthy men were a tiny percent of the population in the empire, and since the letters of James were being sent out into the assemblies of the followers of Jesus, gathered in synagogues, in some of these synagogues, there may have been Jewish men who are immensely wealthy, who wanted nothing to do with Jesus, but they would have had access to cheap labor amongst the believers who came in on Sabbath to gather. Now, this may not be exclusively Jewish makeup of these rich landowners. They could have been Scythians and Germans and Arabs, and they could have been of any nationality, uh, and their wealth could have come from other sources. But James is sending these letters into the synagogue. So I'm just choosing to, to speak to the Jewish issue here, but it may have been Greeks and Romans and others as well. Okay? <clears throat> so out of this uh, pool of cheap labor of those living at subsistence levels and those who desperately needed jobs, here come here comes the offer, you know, to come and work for these wealthy landowners. Now James does not address these men 
with rebuke. Rather, he intensely charges them with hoarding their wealth. These rich are to weep and to wail and to howl because of the impending judgment coming on them. James is prophetically saying this is not referring to any earthly temporal suffering. This judgment is coming from God. These rich men feel isolated from the wretched poor, and they like it that way. But God stands appalled at them. James declares that their wealth will not save them. His language here approaches the excoriating words of Amos chapter 8, verses 4 to 10. Here they are. Hear this, you who trample the needy, to do away with the humble of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over, so that we may buy grain and the Sabbath, that we may open the wheat market, to make the bushel smaller and the shekel bigger, and to cheat the dishonest scales, cheat with with dishonest scales, so so as to buy the helpless for money and the needy for a pair of sandals, that we may sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, indeed, I will never forget any of these deeds. Because of this, will because of this will not dwell, will not the land quake, and everyone who dwells in it mourn? Indeed, all of it will rise up like the Nile, and it will be tossed about and subside like the Nile of Egypt, and it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. And I will turn your festivals into mourning and your songs into lamentations. I will bring sackcloth on everyone's loins and baldness on your head. And I will make it like a time of mourning for an only son. And the end of it will only be like a bitter day. James is addressing these rich landowners who completely disregard God and Scripture. In the ancient East, land and houses were a means of wealth calculation. But here, James takes on other forms of wealth. For example, foodstuffs, barley, wheat, oil, fruit and nut crops, olives, All that stuff has been hoarded up. Okay, Elegant clothing is item number two. These are shimmering fabrics. These are things that have come over the silk silk road from the Far East. They've been embroidered. This is heirloom wear. This is stuff that's so gorgeous and precious and valuable. It's handed down father to son. Now, and we know that garments were used as, as means of wealth transfer uh, because Joseph, when he identifies himself to his 11 brothers that he's the vizier of Egypt, he gives them complete outfits of beautiful clothing. Secondly, Achan is the character listed in, in the book of Judges who, in the middle of the Battle of Jericho, Okay, he's there to fight, but the Lord has already won the battle. And he looks down, and there he sees a beautiful mantle from Shinar. Now, Shinar is the biblical term 
uh, descriptive for all of Mesopotamia. And he sees this beautiful mantle, this garment, and he takes it. Well, that, that piece of fabric, that, that piece of clothing was under the ban. It was not to be touched. It was not to be taken. It was to be burned. He took it. He his tent. He buried it. And the consequence of that was absolute collapse of the, of the Israel, our Israelite armies when they went to fight at the walled city of Ai, etc., so his temptation was this beautiful mantle. It's it's in the wealth that it represented. And then lastly, here in in uh, verse two, James takes on these wealthy men who have currency. They have bullion. They have gold and silver. The rich have hoarded up vast quantities of these, while being surrounded by the desperate hunger and near nakedness of people even on Sabbath in the synagogues. James prophesies that their foodstuffs will rot and spoil and their blingware will be consumed by the tiny little larvae of an insignificant nocturnal insect, the moth. It wings in at night. It settles on this, these beautiful garments. It lays its eggs and when those eggs hatch, the little larvae, the little worms, start to feed and feed and eat and eat. And they turn those beautiful, wealthy garments into lace. In verse 3, James targets the hard assets of these wealthy men. Now, gold is known for not tarnishing, not rusting. But these wealthy men may have heaped up currencies that they had made of other metals alloyed with gold or silver and in, in other marketplaces. You know, you could call them pazuzas or zlotis or whatever you We don't know what they were called. But there was alloyed coinage in the Roman Empire, which may have been susceptible to rust. And this rust was so thorough that the stacks of coin and bullion that they'd amassed was rusted through. It became utterly worthless. Now, some of you may have gone looking on a car lot for a used car. And if you happened upon a car, for example, that had come into California from Minnesota or Michigan or someplace where they salt the roads in the wintertime to control ice and sl- ice and snow. Cars that are run through that salt slush quickly rust through the fenders, the wheel wells, and the undercarriage. And you can find the flaky rust has spotted quickly on these cars in the car lots, and you avoid them. So James says to the rich landowners that the rust and decay of their hoarded wealth will be a witness against them this is language of the of the law courts here. And that same decay, virulent rust, will devour their flesh. Now, whether James' prophetic words here are literal or metaphorical, wealth too often is all-consuming. In Greek, the word for rust is eos. But it's the same word 
for venom and deadly poison. So James would say to them, your hoarded wealth is going to kill you. Lastly, in verse 3, James says, you rich ones, in these last days, you have literally treasured up. You're thinking, now I'm in charge. Now I've got enough. I have sheltered myself from the vicissitudes of the market and from weather changes. I've got plenty. James Turn, last days, speaks at the time from Pentecost right up to today. And this is the period of time in which Jesus is expected to return. James' words address an eschatological reality. Now, eschatology is the study of end times things. So James is prophetically saying, these, in the end times, Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to reign and to rule and to judge. And, and then James' words are also aimed at these wealthy landowners as a present tense pain as their great wealth rots, rusts, and poisons their life. Now, this past week, I had, I had three, three tree climbers come uh, and work high in trees on my property. Now, years ago, one such contractor came and stood under those same trees and rubbed his face, and he said, sooner or later, all trees fall down. Likewise, sooner or later, all of us die. And Hebrews 9.27 says, then comes judgment. Now, recognizing that hoarded, unused, unavailable to God wealth is condemned here. James moves on. These rich men who have such hoarded wealth are implicated in theft, in holding back wages from their workers. That statement right there could be in our headlines today, every day. I mean, it's a commonplace thing in the market. But these rich landowners had hired crews of harvesters who went in and reaped their fields and then came back to be paid and they were cut off. They were defrauded of their wages. <clears throat> the text in verse 4 says, The inanimate wages find their story told before God. Let me say that again. Their inanimate wages find their story told before God. So nothing is secret. Nothing is hidden. Okay, and... Their cries have gone up, and they too have risen into the presence of God. He hears them. <clears throat> okay? Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says. This is part of the law, the second reading of the law. People are getting ready to go into the promised land. This is what you need to know. <clears throat> okay? You are not, you will not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and in your towns. You will give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that in, <clears throat> so, um, excuse me, so that he may not cry out against you 
to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. All right, so if these landowners here were, in fact, Jewish, they have gone rogue. They are defying Scripture. God sees the overlooked, unpaid, downtrodden, defrauded, poor, and he appears here as Lord Sabaoth. Okay, that's God Almighty. That's the God of armies. That's the omnipotent one. The Lord of hosts coming to the defense of the defenseless. James says to these wealthy men, God has heard the complaints against you, and he stands ready to deal with you. As a side note here, James rightly positions God as the avenger. That is his unique role. It is not the role of men. <clears throat> so, hoarding had left had led to theft, and now, in verse 5, it plunges these wealthy landowners into degenerate indulgence. They live a profligate, pleasure-filled, soft life filled with luxuries. They squander their wealth on themselves and experience their own heaven on earth. They're going to arrive at judgment, judgment day. They're going to be very content, but condemned. I want you to hear the words of Dan McCartney on wealth. He said, it is endemic to human behavior everywhere for the rich to oppress the poor. And the Greco-Roman world was no exception. And James' condemnation applies to every manifestation of greed and the abuse of power, not just the withholding of wages. Those who intentionally or in ignorance have used the poor, James says, you have fattened yourself for the day of slaughter. That day of slaughter reference is noted in Scripture as, as the day of God's judgment on those who oppose him. This needs to be taken as a Western, taken into the heart of the Western church. You see, it's a warning because we too in the past, perhaps in the present, with some certitude in the future. Okay, we too use the poor. Maybe it has to do with the, the kicks that we wear, the clothes that we wear, the food that we eat, etc. Okay? And there's an awful lot here that, that James has already come against that might apply to us. Okay, We dare not soften James' rhetoric to get off the hook here, to feel comfortable with this text. In verse 6, hoarding has led to theft, which led to debauched indulgence, and now it has led to murder. James launches his indictment against these men. You condemned, you murdered an innocent, a righteous one. Now, is this judicial? Is this metaphorical? Is this literal? Or is it a combination of these? And my suggestion is, you ask James when you see him soon. 
for the destitute harvesters, the withholding of wages meant nothing to eat. So they were condemned to starvation, perhaps death by malnutrition. To those who may have stood up to the landowners to ask for their wages, they may have been done away with, put down, removed as a warning. No troublemakers here. So the poor cannot resist the wealthy. Any way you slice this, the wealthy have snatched away God's role as judge. James has spent six verses here laying out the trials of the believers who worked and were not paid, who raised a voice and were cut down, who went into starvation mode. And now James transfers from prophetic condemnation of the lawless wealthy to address the brothers and sisters in his pastoral role. Here, he says, is how you all are to respond to this and all subsequent trials. The response of faith into the face of wicked oppression is patience. The Greek word is macrothumia. Now, mind you, this patience is not passive, but it does navigate between angry zealots who would strike back and the pacifists who would just want to say, oh, let it go. Get another job. You know, peace at all costs. <clears throat> James closes the door on violence as a means to advance the cause of Christ. And he closes the door on those who just knuckle under. Here, patience is a call to persevere, to hang in there, to keep going, to keep trusting in God for his justice on your behalf. And that's coming in the parousia. See, that's the Greek word here that's used and translated, the coming of the Lord. The return of Jesus to reign in glory and rule and judge with righteousness. And James says, it's near. It's right here at the door. The early church, James, John, Paul, Peter, they all believed Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And they lived fully in that expectation. And then James said, Look here, remember, farmers wait for the precious produce of the soil. All through the hungry winter into spring, they're patient, but they're not passive. See, until their crops get the early and the late rains, there's going to be nothing to eat. In Palestine, the farmers plowed down the old stubble got the dirt all crumbly and smooth and ready. And they did that in September, maybe early, early October, but they didn't put any, they didn't put any seed into it. They watched the sky. They paid attention to the weather. And when the rain was coming, when it was imminent, there was a mad scramble to get the sowing done, to get all that seed out across their fields and undercover under the soil. So when the rain hit it, You'd get sprouted barley, sprouted wheat, sprouted vegetables, and then they waited as they hoed weeds. They waited as they fertilized their crop. They waited for the late rains. And those rains fell in Israel from January to March. Now, I've, I've been in Jerusalem in late January, 
early February, and it snowed, and I got absolutely drenched, drowned almost, this thundering, crashing downpour, soaked up at Hotsource, just up by Mount Hermon, close to the border. So when that when those heavy rains come, the late rains come, it, it gives you groundwater to all those grain crops so that they as they ripen in the in the sun, as it heats up, you have a fully mature barley crop ready to harvest at at Passover and a fully mature wheat crop ready to harvest at Pentecost. James readers and listeners were attuned to that waiting to that expectancy. Many of them would have been farmers. But farmers cannot force God's hand. Craig Blomberg and Miriam Kamel, who I've really enjoyed for their their uh, expository commentary on James, um, have said, quote, We have the promise of, of Christ's return. So count that as well worth waiting for. We are called to wait well. Unquote. James continues in verse 8 to urge, even command his assemblies to wait well, to strengthen their hearts. The Lord's return is near. This world is not all there is. You're in training for eternity. The Septuagint uses the word strengthen as an exhortation to gain strength to prepare for a journey. We should too. So build up your courage and trust him who promised to be with you and who promised to return for you. We are to keep pressing toward him. We are to choose not to quantify our life's results. That's his business. And we are to keep trusting in God's timing. In verse 9, James comes back to the tongue. When we get stressed, oppressed, pushed, shorted, messed with, we begin to complain, to groan, to grumble, to murmur. Now, first we lament to God. Now, he has a plan for you. He has a destiny for you in place. But he does not answer petulance. So we complain to others. And then we complain against others. They don't understand. They don't agree with my plight. They hurt my feelings. They become the enemy. So James steps into his congregations who are complaining and groaning against each other. And he says literally, stop it. Stop finding fault. Stop placing blame. Complaint is judgment, and judgment is sin. Life in the assemblies in the first century was hard. It was just difficult. Now, and James is trying to provide care for them, but the murmuring and groaning against each other did not meet God's approval. In verse 10, James follows with how not to complain. Instead, look to the example of the prophets that are, that are laid out in, the, in Hebrew Scripture. The Greek word, hupodegma, means to show, 
and it stands first in word order in verse 10, and as such, it gets all the emphasis. The prophets of old steered a path between zealots and pacifists, and yes, they suffered oppression and rejection, even martyrdom. But they spoke out against oppressors while, there's your operant word, while they came to the defense of the poor and defenseless. Remember chapter 1, verse 12 of James? I mean, that's weeks and weeks ago. <laughs> Let me read it. Here, James has his own beatitude, if you will. Blessed. Makarios is the word. Blessed. Happy. Joyful. Okay? Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 11, he says, You've heard of the endurance of Job? Now, what you've heard about is Job's endurance. That lasted. His patience, man, it wore out. Job, Job's patience failed, really. But he persevered. Job is the primary biblical example of endurance and steadfastness in trials. James says to his congregants, You've seen the outcome in the lives of the prophets. You have seen the outcome in the lives of your brothers and sisters. You've seen that the Lord is full of compassion and and is merciful. Now, to get all that in, James had to tool up and craft a word. It only appears here in the New Testament. It's the word full of compassion. The Lord gets it. He gets that it's hard. He gets that you're suffering. He's full of compassion. In verse 12, to tie all this together, James ends where he should have begun with a phrase that says, but above all, he's saying, people do this first. And I think, I think what James is driving at here, above all else, as you respond to oppression and trials, to injustices, above all else, watch your mouth. Human nature and human experience collide when we're under big pressure. Out of, out of your mouth comes these reversal statements. Just you wait, I'll get you. Just you wait, I'm going to get that promotion. I will never let this happen to me again. I will never trust a landlord again. I will never trust a boss like you again. I will never trust a blonde. I will never be that open and transparent ever again. See, all those are inner vows. And once spoken in the heat of the big pressure, the big pain, the big disappointment, our in the enemy of our soul, Satan, goes to work to put you in a deja vu experience all over again. Exactly what you said. Oh no, I never do that. Here we are. Here it comes again. James was concerned about a different oath and vow cycle. One that let men and women under big pressure shave the truth. 
They weren't really lying. They were just not telling all the truth. Or when they were pushed hard up against the wall, the poor would vow anything to get relief, but they could not perform to keep that vow. Either way, James pushes this issue of the tongue, of speaking to, in a stressed, oppressed heart out into the very front of the line and says to, to his people, in the words of Jesus, stop the oaths, stop the vows. Let your speech be yes, yes, and your no, no. No gray areas, no equivocation, no excuses. So, Forge family, I got a question for you. Have you been oppressed? Have you been pushed on hard? So what, what came up inside of you? Was there, was there a shift toward violent response or to retreat? See, Holy Spirit has good lessons here for you. He wants your eyes on good examples of the faith as you walk through trials. Just watch your mouth. When we get super frustrated or hurt, we want our speech to be clear and pure and acceptable to God. All right, family, let's pray. Father of all good gifts, Thank you for examples from James on how not to do church and examples of how to relate to oppressors, even to relate to ourselves when we get just jammed up. We want to be those whose speech is yes, yes, and no, no. In your presence, Lord. Amen. All right, Forge family, I love you. I know this is a long podcast, long passage. Getting ready to finish the book of James next week. God bless you. We'll see you soon.